This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. The return to glory. I got to tell you, every time I hear that, I get chills. I mean, I was watching it live as so many people were. And one guy, one of the many people who is very excited about that is Dan Murphy. He is the CEO of Bridgestone Golf. He joins us on the phone from Covington, Georgia, back with us. Because if you recall, Carol, he joined us last summer and was talking a lot about Tiger Woods and the excitement there at Bridgestone. Brought in some golf balls, if I recall. He did indeed. He did indeed. Dan, uh, great to have you back with us. So pretty good week down there uh, in Covington, huh? I would say so. We're (laughs) on top of the world. I can tell you that. So... What were you, I mean, I I feel like I'm a sideline reporter when I ask that, but how were you feeling as you watched Tiger, you know, in contention through the whole tournament and then just march toward uh, victory there on Sunday? Well, I mean, I felt good about it, and I don't want to brag, but I did (laughs) predict back in January, I was on the Golf Channel, and they asked me who was going to who was going to win this year and what was going to happen, and I said, Tiger Woods is going to win the Masters. So I really... And all joking aside, I felt like he was tracking very well his right. play, his uh, his outlook. Uh, we spent time with him shooting TV commercials, so I got to know him a little better. And he was just on target. You could feel it coming. And yeah. there he was. You know, he was just lurking behind, one shot behind, two shots behind. He was in a perfect spot Thursday, Friday, and ready to pounce on Sunday. You know, it's hard not to have rooted for him. For anybody who watches the game, loves the game. I grew up watching it because of my dad and my brothers who all played golf. But it's just, you know, you love to see someone who was on top, went through a tough time, get back on top. I have to ask you, though, as a company where the public can certainly vote very quickly if they don't like what a spokesperson does or an influencer does, right? They go to social media and so on and so forth. What made you guys feel like you could safely and smartly take the step of endorsing Tiger after all the stuff that kind of <laughs> you know what I mean though right well we talked to him and and we knew that sure he had had some hard times and he was a little polarizing at one time maybe in the height of his career and with some of his troubles but we had a lot of faith in the guy as a person and we knew his ability on the golf course and we felt like it was a good bet and uh, you know we we feel pretty good about the payoff well, and Dan, you know, you mentioned that you spent time with him. And, and I want to ask you a question that I asked our Ebenovi Williams, uh, one of our writers who follows the business of sports so closely. And and one of the things that feels like it comes through, whether it is in interviews that Tiger is giving or even in the sort of unbridled joy that he was able to express in those seconds after that last putt sank is – this feels like kind of a different guy uh, at this moment. You know, someone who, he just feels different. What do you think about that? Oh, 100%. We call it Tiger 2.0. And, uh, you know, it is a different Tiger. If you remember during his press conferences as he was going into some of the majors last year, he used very different words than he used to use. I mean, uh, he used the word blessed at one point. Yeah. And so when we when we were going into doing our TV ads, we wanted to, 
portray that more human, approachable, humorous side of Tiger. And so we purposely portrayed him smiling, laughing, joking. We even had a, a guy that's a, a social media internet star that does imitations of players. Uh, we had this guy in the ad with Tiger. So we had Tiger face-to-face with a guy that was basically making fun of him and right. showing that Tiger could take a joke. And, and we wanted to portray that side of him. It's hard to imagine Tiger in 2003 going along with a joke like that. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> no, he was a great sport. And the yeah. guy, just a little bit of an insight about Tiger, the, the guy was kind of green. The guy that we use, his name's Connor Moore. He's in New York City, actually. And, um, you, know, you know, it was lights, camera, action, and he was face-to-face with a legend. And he, he was a little bit nervous. And Tiger, to his credit, took this kid under his wing and really propped him up and made him relax and, you know, got the performance out of him that we all wanted. So it worked out good. And to me, it was a a real moment when Tiger reached beyond himself and really helped somebody else. You know, we recently had a guest on talking about sports memorabilia. And I do wonder about um, that ball that Tiger played with the winning or final putt, if you will, uh, at the Masters. We've got a story out by our Scott Soshnick that talks about that, you know, it could could go for as much as a half a million dollars or so if it's put up for auction. Is it going to be put up for auction? Oh, I don't know. That's uh, really the property of Tiger now that we gave it to him. I don't know if he and Augusta National will have that in a trophy case somewhere. I, yeah. I don't know. Um, I do know that if you want a, ti- a Tiger replica of a golf ball, you can go down to your golf shop and buy some Bridgestone. Well, well <laughs> having said that, did you get a boost in sales coming off of Tiger uh, and the Masters this weekend? Oh, 100%. Um, social media is the easiest thing to measure, and we can see it right away, up 250% on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that. And then our website exploded, too. We're double the volume that we were last year at Masters. And Masters last year was a big deal because that was his return. And here we are with his victory, really propelling us to a whole other level. We're, we're thrilled. And so how do you leverage this in the short term and and in the midterm? As you say, you rolled this out uh, last year. It's been a big seller for you. So do you sort of expand the line? How do you play this? (laughs) Well, it's funny. There's an old saying in the golf equipment business, win on Sunday, sell on Monday. (laughs) We are doing that exactly. We would expect uh, a sales uh, pickup from this, a Tiger Lift. Uh, you know, anywhere between twenty and thirty percent, we wow. think on that on that line of balls that he's playing. Um, we're already getting just a lot of anecdotal feedback from folks that are calling and wanting to know about the ball or um, writing us on the internet. And stuff. Right. So um, we're seeing we're seeing a lift already, and uh, as we go forward, I can tell you we've already switched some of our production lines to to that model of golf ball. It was the wow. Turbo XS that he yep. played. Good stuff. And, um, so, yeah, we're seeing a lift already. That's great. Dan Murphy, uh, CEO of Bridgestone Golf, joining us on the phone from down in Covington, Georgia, not too far from where Tiger made history on Sunday afternoon. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So we do want to talk about uh, this story that is among our most read, actually, in fact, our most read uh, in the past eight hours on the Bloomberg Terminal. Certainly caught my attention this morning when I was reading in, as I mentioned to Jason earlier, Anadarko, which, of course, has been in the news uh, last week, agreeing to be sold to Chevron Corporation. It's a $33 billion deal. But the story today is about Anadarko having its own Me Too moment, um, allegations against the company. Uh, Let's get into uh, the story. Catherine Trawick is energy 
editor at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from our Denver bureau. Catherine, nice to have you here with us. Tell us a little bit about this story and how it came to your attention. Sure. So this the situation at Anadarko, I think, in Denver has been a little bit of an open secret for a long time. I've been hearing was sort of whispers about inappropriate conduct at this company for almost a year now. And so about eight months ago, I started reaching out to women who worked there, women who used to work there, trying to find out what their experiences were like. And I heard some very graphic, very disturbing stories about things that had happened at this company. Such as? You know, there are stories about sexual harassment. Women told me about supervisors who asked them questions about their sexual activity, who told them that if they wanted to move up in management, that they should perform oral sex, things like that. Um, You know, there's also a complaint letter I obtained by a woman who alleges that two of the highest-ranking executives in the Denver office had sexual relationships in the office with subordinates. And so... Before we get any further, what does Anadarko say to this? Anadarko acknowledges that there were complaints um, about harassment and discrimination. They say that they have uh, been responsive to those complaints, at least starting since 2017. They say they've been working to beef up their anti-discrimination programs, a sexual harassment training program. You know, at this point, they say that they have trained a little bit more than half of their workforce Um, in their policies. They have strengthened their retaliation policy, all of this. For the women that I spoke to, the changes are coming a bit late because Mm -hmm. they've already left the company. Well, and obviously this is coming to the fore in part because Anadarko just agreed to be bought by Chevron, a huge deal, $33 billion. What does it say about the broader uh, culture? You know, you follow this whole industry, all things energy. Uh, What does it tell us about sort of the broader uh, industry, if anything? You know, oil is one of the most male-dominated industries in the world. It ranks second only to construction in terms of gender inequality. All day, I have been receiving messages from women in this industry saying, thank you for running this story. I have an experience like this. So this kind of thing is very widespread. People don't talk about it. They feel like they can't talk about it. I think that maybe after this, we'll start seeing more stories come out. Yeah, and what's fascinating, too, is there was one, um, I'm sorry, I'm going through your story and just looking for, for my notes, but where it was very blatant in terms of, I think, going for jobs and was explicitly laid out that the men would be paid more than the women. Yes, there was one example of a woman who was part of a leadership training program inside of the company, which the training program was 50% men, 50% women. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the program, all of the men in the program were made managers, which is a higher paying position, and the women were made supervisors, which is a lower paying position. And to be fair, the company has denied all of these allegations? No. Um, they haven't denied any allegations. They said they've been responsive to the complaint and have okay. taken steps to correct this culture. Well, and it's interesting that you talk, Catherine, about sort of receiving emails uh, from people beyond the industry. Do you get any sense from people that it used to happen this way, but now it's getting better? Or is this just the beginning in some ways? I think that if we're going to go back to, say, the 80s, that it was probably worse back then. Right. But some of the stories that I heard, yeah, some of the stories I heard were very shocking. And these stories occurred in 2016, 2017, very recently. Um, I think there's a lot going on behind closed doors that we just don't know about. 
Well, and the, and you know, I think you write in your story too that the energy com- uh, the energy industry in general has kind of escaped certainly the spotlight being put on them in the Me Too mom- moment movement rather, but it seems like things are starting to come out. Perhaps you know, I was I've been thinking about this why mm. it's taken so long for these stories to come out given how male dominated the right. industry yeah. is. And I think that the reason, after speaking to so many women in this industry, I think the reason is that women that come into the oil industry are tough. Mm-hmm. And they come in with the idea that they have to work harder and be better than men and that they can run with the boys and they can take whatever's put in front of them. So their inclination when something like this happens isn't to go run and tell. It's to suck it up. Yeah. Right. And I think now, after Harvey Weinstein and all of this Me Too stuff has started rolling, I think that more women are saying, you know, maybe there's something that we can do for women that come into the industry later. It's a great point, and it's a... Uh, it's- a rationalization or an explanation that we hear on Wall Street uh, as well. So definitely some uh, some parallels. Uh, phenomenal reporting. Catherine Trawick joining us from Denver. Her story about Anadarko's Me Too moment. The most read story today on the Bloomberg Terminal. I'll put it up on Twitter for everyone. So genetic engineering, this is definitely, as I said to our next guest, really a friend of the network. Um, it's definitely a great topic of debate, the pros and cons that are out there. Uh, digging into that, though, is a new book. It's called Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity, out next week. J.B. Metzl is senior fellow at Atlantic Council. He's former director uh, on the U.S. National Security Council, the State Department, and on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. So nice to see you. Thank you, Carol. Nice to be here. Tell me about about or tell us about this book that you've written and what's kind of what you set out to do. Sure. So people understand when you talk about the genetics revolution, people feel that's interesting science. It's science fiction. It's something about the future that I'll probably need to know about in the future. And what I'm saying is the genetics revolution is here. It's now. It's going to touch your life in a deep and fundamental way, and it's going to transform your health care the way we make babies, the nature of the babies we make, and ultimately even our evolutionary trajectory as a species. And as important as all of this is, it's not just that we're not ready, we're not hardly even talking about it. And why aren't we? Because it's so easy. You open the newspaper, and what do you see? You see Trump, you see Brexit, you see all of these issues that are maybe easier to comprehend, mm-hmm. that feel urgent. And yet there are these bigger trends that are fundamental. hundred years from now, when people look back at now, they're not going to remember this as the age of Trump or the age of Brexit. But this will be the age when after four billion years of evolution, we ultimately took control of all of biology, including our own. Jamie, like we couldn't wait to map the genome. And I can't remember how long I talked about yeah. it in this industry and you know the mapping. And it was slow progress. And then all of a sudden it was done. Right. right? And now we're starting to use that information in terms of applications for healthcare and so on and so forth. So what's the pros and cons? What's the good stuff, right? In terms of medical care, we're talking yeah. about transformations. Well, this is great. And people should be excited about the genetics right. revolution because it's really going to help us. I mean, there are all kinds of agricultural and other applications. But just in terms of, of human health, we're going to be able to cure all kinds of diseases, terrible diseases. We're going to be able to live longer, healthier, more robust lives, and that's great. We're also going to be able to influence and manipulate in some ways the way we make babies um, to help our the so-called babies. designer babies. You know, this, people call it designer, but is it a designer baby if you eliminate the chance that uh, that your baby is going to die of a terrible genetic disease? That right. is a form of designer baby, and people right. you know people think not go straight to Nazism, but there's a lot that we would all agree is that's good is, that is, is pretty of, good. Right. And so the upsides are tremendous and really exciting. 
And there are some dangers because if we are not careful, if we don't address issues like equity of access, if we don't, if we don't think deeply about well, issues. go right there. Yes. I yeah. mean, we already don't have equity right. of access. You know, think right. about the college admissions We were talking scandal. about this yes. just before we came on You the forget air, college yeah. admissions. I mean, imagine everybody who's listening to this broadcast and most everyone in the Central African Republic. What are your lives like? What are your possibilities? What are the, the opportunities that your children have? And so we need to be really mindful about how these ethical issues play out. But if we care about those values, Let's start living those values now so when we get to the future, we'll know who we are. So who is going to be the arbiter of making sure we do this right? Because here we are in an environment where Brexit still not done. I'm just thinking yeah. about how long it takes for us to get trade deals done. And I know they're complicated issues, but even, you know, disputes over border right. walls and things like that. How can we, when we're talking about something on right. such a high plane yeah. that really requires the world to right. agree on uh, rules about it. How do we get there? So there's a few things. Or First, who needs to be responsible? Well, the, the answer to that is we all need to be responsible. We're talking about the future of life on earth and our lives, and that's everybody's business. And so everybody needs to be educated. And I've written the book, Hacking Darwin. If, to, if there's one book you, you can read to get the issues, I want this, uh, this to be it. But that's not enough. So everyone needs to be educated. Everyone needs to be part of the conversation. And then we need to do things like this. That sound kind of boring. We need to build norms that can lead towards regulations and national regulations and then international regulations. I'm part of the World Health Organization International Advisory Committee on the Future of Human Genome Editing. And that's what we are struggling to do to say, how can we have international standards? And they won't, they won't be perfect, but there's some areas like chemical and biological weapons where international norms and standards have actually worked. That's true. So we talked about designer babies and whatnot. Sorry, and I know I throw that out there. <laughs> one of the things that uh, you also talk about is just sort of day-to-day health care, yeah, right? And sort right. of the ability to make different decisions, but also probably therapies and other things that, that could play into this as well. Give us some Yeah, so it's, it's really important. So right now, we live in a world mostly of generalized health care. That's if you have cancer, you get a cancer treatment, and there's maybe a third a chance it's going to help you, a third a chance it's going to do nothing, a third a chance it's going to hurt you. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, then you try again and you, and you keep going. That is going to seem crazy because we should know, based on someone's biology, what type of treatments are more likely to work for them. There's right. also a whole class of interventions called gene therapy where you take cells out of the body, right. manipulate them to, for example, give them cancer-fighting superpowers and put them back. And right. all of that is great. Then beyond that, our, our increasing knowledge of the genome is going to allow people to have more information. So people are going to have relevant, actionable genetic information coming from outside of the healthcare system. Don't you wonder, though, what Darwin would say about this? This whole idea of yes. evolution, right, where we just kind of weed out what isn't good right. naturally. Right. We're we're totally turning that upside well, down. Or we're, I don't know, doing it much quicker. Much yeah, well, the, like, as, you can, as you see, the title of my book is Hacking Darwin. Yeah. Because for four billion years, we've evolved, evolved by the Darwinian principles of random mutation right. and natural selection. And it's worked fairly well. It's, you know, we've, really it seems, well. You know, it looks, you guys look pretty good. Um, <laughs> but right now, we are taking control. So we are going to have... Uh, self-guided mutation and self-guided selection. And if we do that not connected to a set of values, this could be really dangerous. On the other hand, this Darwinian principle of evolution hasn't been all good. And when we see young people dying of terrible genetic diseases, you think, well, that's a bug. And why shouldn't we be able right. to fix that bug? Exactly. So I want to ask you, if you can, to sort of tie your current work back to your previous work, sure. because you understand national security as well as yeah. anyone. You worked uh, at very high levels in that uh, part of the world. I would imagine this has implications for national security, for the way that 
countries interact with Absolutely. each other. And, and the reason why I was just saying a moment ago uh, uh, that I'm involved in this issue is more than 20 years ago when I was on the National Security Council, my then boss, Richard Clark, was the guy who predicted 9-11. Yeah. And he always used to say, if everyone in Washington is, fo- is focusing on one thing, you can be sure that there's something else that's much more important. And so for more than 20 years, I've been focusing on these issues. So what we'll imagine, well, we know what's happened with genetically modified crops, abortion, with these issues that are extremely controversial that have led to all kinds of violence. How big of an issue is it going to be when the issue is genetically modified humans? Right. And some states, for some very good reasons, may decide that they're going to opt out. But if state X opts out and state Y opts in, what does state X do? You can say, hey, we prefer that you not do it. Or we could say we're, it's illegal for our citizens to procreate with your citizens. Right. Or we can try to wow. stop you. Right? Or we can use force. I mean, people have gone to war. Countries have gone to war over all kinds of nonsense. I mean, this right. is really serious stuff. And we don't have the systems. We don't have the guardrails. And that's, again, why I've written this book, is we have to be thinking proactively about these issues. We still have time. But people are have, we thinking about We're not. And that's, that's, why, I mean, that's why this book, that's why I'm so passionate about this, is that, that we need to be. We're spending so much time time on rubbish and we need to be focusing on the serious stuff well it's a must read it's out next tuesday april 23rd the book is called hacking darwin genetic engineering in the future of humanity and in the notes that you provided i have to say this feels like a michael crichton preface (laughs) after 3.8 billion years humankind is about to start evolving by new rules it's happening you gotta read it Jamie Metzl, congrats on the book. Senior fellow at Atlantic Counts joining us here in New York. That book out next week. (laughs) I thought I recognized that. I thought that's where that was going. Mission Impossible, right? Okay. So, um, and our next story, well, it does make reference to a movie, a different movie. (laughs) in it, but we'll get into that in just a moment. Um, Let's talk about what's going on in terms of Venezuelan refugees that are pouring into Bogota and uh, its surrounding neighborhoods. Writing remarks this week in the magazine, Ethan Browner, he's editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, and he joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Fascinating story. Tell us, Ethan, what's going on. Sure, Carol. Um, What's going on is that because of the war, internal war of Venezuela, the effort to drive Maduro from power, his effort to stay in power, there is a kind of parallel universe that's being set up in Bogota, in the capital of the neighboring country of Colombia, in which you have hundreds of thousands of Venezuelan refugees, you have spies of the government looking at them, you have American intelligence, Russian intelligence, Cuban. There is a kind of Casablanca-like atmosphere in the place as the uh, Venezuela conflict heats up to being a superpower rivalry hotpoint. There's your movie reference right there. There Casablanca. you go, right? Uh, and what's so fascinating is there's a long history between these two countries, owing in part to proximity, but also politics. Help us understand that. And you were there in, yes, of course. in the region. That's right. Um, I've Some been, time I've ago. Been in, but, well, I was just down in Bogota right. for this story a week or two ago, and I was there last year for the election. And as I, I also lived there some decades ago for a year as a teacher. So I, I, do ha- I do go way back with the place. But the point you're making is that Colombia has had a series of decades of internal guerrilla warfare, Marxist guerrillas known as the FARC. And Venezuela for the last 20 years has been uh, a left-wing uh, country that has welcomed the FARC and helped the FARC and sort of worked against 
the establishment in Colombia. It has also uh, dealt the cocaine that's been grown in Colombia. Right. And so there's been a lot of back and forth. The other thing is that during the years of the oil boom and the Chavista boom in Venezuela, hundreds of thousands, in fact, millions of Colombians moved across the border to Venezuela. Well, that's... And, now that, the movement's the other way. That's what's interesting because I, 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 in the story, it's fascinating because it was, you know, the idea that immigration was never really an issue for Colombia, right? Because nobody ever wanted to go there. Well, now it is an issue, or is it? Or, or are they being the Venezuelan refugees? Are they being welcomed? They and they're, are being and they're welcomed. refugees at all levels. At all if levels you will. of the socioeconomic yeah. stratum. That's absolutely true. And I would say broadly, it's really a, a kind of a beautiful situation in terms sense of how the Colombians have welcomed them. But it is unquestionably straining the system. And the other thing is that the longer Venezuela uh, remains in the hands of the Maduro government, the more people will leave because people are literally starving in Venezuela, despite the fact that they're sitting atop the largest uh, reserves of oil it's in tragic. the world. Yeah. Um, and so the, it's actually straining Colombia, and there will be some kind of breaking point, or there's a risk of it anyway, and people are worried about it. It's one of the reasons the United States views the whole situation as potentially a national security crisis. Right, and let's talk about that, because we talked about the relationship between Venezuela and Colombia, but this is a global geopolitical issue. It is, and that's partly because uh, Venezuela is uh, in South America, in the Western Hemisphere. The United States views it as its territory, its right. backyard, under the Monroe Doctrine of the 19th century. It's also because Venezuela has been heavily aided by Cuba in exchange for oil. And, of course, Cuba was a, a Soviet and Russian satellite for a long time. And that superpower stuff has been, has been heating up. The, uh, the Latin America has been heavily involved in kind of leftist populism a la Cuba and Venezuela for many years. That was true in Brazil, in Peru, in, uh, uh, in uh, Argentina. And now the, 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 the content is shifting back and the U.S. is eager for that shift to go as far as possible. Yeah, and it's fascinating, Jason, because I think about we had a conversation with you earlier for our Business Week uh, weekend program. And it's, you know, this whole idea of how the U.S. is so much, like, doesn't get involved in a lot, certainly under this administration, a lot of geopolitical situations, and yet they have chosen, Jason, you brought this up, um, and smartly so, you know, that they have chosen to get involved in this one. They have. I mean, I think we're all a little unclear about how deeply involved they're willing to get. The original plan as of January a few months ago was by... Standing by Juan Guaido, the interim president, the head of the National Assembly, that, uh, you know, we'd sort of announce okay and that the Maduro regime would kind of crumble uh, given how difficult the economy is. And that hasn't happened. The military has stood by uh, President Maduro. And so has Russia. So has Cuba. So has Turkey. So has Iran. So has China. And so it has because the United States has been insisting this is not something we're going to give up on. Right. One wonders where it is going. Well, you do think about the implications, right? Because you have the U.S. and some other of its allies on one side and you've got Cuba and Russia and China kind of just watching also. Um, and that's a big deal. Yeah. The importance of this here in this country as we try and you know figure out what our foreign policy really is. This certainly uh, is at the fore. Ethan Bronner, what a treat uh, to catch up with. You can catch a different 
conversation of this sorts with Ethan in our weekend show. It's a featured it's story. All it's all good. Mm. It's all good. Uh, but we dig a little bit more into it there. Check that out and check out the story. It's on the Bloomberg Terminal today and on Bloomberg.com and in the upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Carol? I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Jim Lowell, Chief Investment Officer at Advisor Investments, looking after more than $5 billion in assets. He joins us on the phone from Newton, Mass. Happy belated Patriot's Day to you, Jim. Thank you very much. Uh, so tell us what's going on uh, out in the markets. You know, I feel like for the past few days especially – We've had our team come in at the top of the show at 2 p.m., and Joe Weisenthal, one of our markets gurus, sort of sits back and says, well, not quite sure what's exactly going on. It's a little slow, some hemming and hawing. Uh, what do you see? I see exactly the same thing. It feels like we're running in sand. One of the things that we need to see, of course, is more earnings reports, more guidance. We'll get there both this week and next week. I think by the end of next week, once the – technology names weigh in together with the financial services we're getting this week, we'll probably be able to call an earnings trend. But ultimately, no new dramatic negative news on the event-driven front Thursday when uh, the Mueller report uh, gets revealed in greater detail. That might be an event-driven disruption. No new news in terms of slow growth, not no growth here at home. Slowing global growth, but not no global growth, uh, globally speaking. Uh, lays the landscape for this market to effectively stand still. Right. I love this in your research. Slowing earnings growth will not translate into no earnings growth, right? There's a difference. There's a slowdown um, that might be just a slowdown. There might be a slowdown that portends something more dismal coming forward. And then there's a slowdown that turns into, I don't know, a downturn or a recession, right? That's absolutely right. And there's a lot of sort of dismal expectations that are baked into a fairly low bar for the first quarter earnings to be able to get over. But we definitely have seen an uptick in the phrase earnings recession. We think that uh, that's uh, nerve-wracking for a reason, but uh, unnecessarily so. We do expect to see slow earnings growth uh, year over year. Uh, that said, not no earnings growth, certainly not no profitability not just in terms of broad sectors within the overall marketplace, but also on a stock-by-stock basis. We expect to see uh, relatively good news, uh, not just in terms of earnings, but backed up uh, by the support of economic data, which continues to suggest, as our Fed uh, continues to reiterate, that uh, our economy is clearly not running on empty. 
Right. And when we look at these earnings, I don't want to get too far away from that just yet. I mean, who are the ones where you look and you say, all right, that's a really good indication of where we are. I mean, you know, BlackRock we had this morning, which I thought was a really interesting report, especially the way investors reacted because the initial reaction was negative And now it seems to have turned around the big banks, uh, obviously. And obviously we're waiting for Netflix in just a few minutes. So what are your harbingers here? So we like uh, we like bellwethers like Citigroup, Goldman Sachs. You mentioned BlackRock. Bank of America will get this week together with uh, Bank of New York, Morgan Stanley, American Express. All of those give us a good read on not just the health of the financial system overall, but the drivers of it, the borrowers, uh, namely both smaller businesses, bigger businesses, but also consumers. And as goes the U.S. consumer, so goes the uh, marketplace. Uh, from our perspective. But we also saw J.B. Hunt intermodal activity slowing down a little bit uh, in terms of road transport traffic. That may or may not be uh, concerning given that we use that as what we call a a real-world indicator, something that lets us put our finger on the pulse of economic activity. CSX will chime in this week as well. So we begin uh, begin this week really with financials. Uh, We end with financials. Next week, we move to uh, tech beyond today's report out of Netflix, of course. Um, And between those two rails, we suspect that we will continue to see that slow growth, not no growth for the economy, continues to spell good news for slowing earnings growth, but not no earnings growth. Jim Lowe, how do you read something that, you know, Bank of America, we did get their results, and their CFO says on the conference call today, you know, we don't see any evidence of a recession. If a recession were to come, though, we are very well prepared. How do you read that from a major <laughs> bank that really taps into the consumer so well? How do you read that? Well, first of all, um, he's doing precisely what a CEO ought to do, which is to uh, create uh, comfort and guidance, not just for uh, shareholders, but also for employees. Bank of America, of course, just last week unveiling its $20 an hour uh, wage. One of the ways they can keep that is by laying off the workforce in a bear market. So they've got plenty of tools at their disposal. But I think overall, our takeaway is that American banks, the American banking system, the overall financial system is in significantly better shape than it was in 08-09, precisely because of what happened in 08-09. I'll take the flip side of that, though. We saw United Health today beat on earnings, mm-hmm. uh, raise guidance, but clearly uh, fall as it came into the crosshairs of what's likely to be an ongoing uh, politicized debate about uh, things that will impact the healthcare sector short term for us. That will create probably some very good long term buying opportunities at discounted prices. Right, United Health down uh, big time, and I think one of our underperformers. I do want to make a point, though, that that recession comment was by the CFO, right. so just so that we uh, put it out there. So biggest single risk, you think, for the rest of uh, 2019, Jim Lowell? Uh, slowing global growth accelerates, especially out of China. Europe uh, is uh, almost always languishing, it feels, on the cusp of, of a recession. But it really is uh, the two super economies, the two superpowers, China and U.S., that will dictate the fate of uh, the markets from year through year end outside of some sort of significantly negative event-driven impact. 
Jim Lowell is the Chief Investment Officer up at Advisor Investments, looking after more than $5 billion based in Newton, Mass. Carol? Yeah. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.